Well, I actually, uh, by growing up in Carbondale, I just, I knew, you know, that we were kind of separated uh, northeast side from the uh, west side of Carbondale. And a lot of people never even knew that, uh, you know, that we were a red line, you mm-hmm. know, for different things. And I know for, you know, certainly because I was red line to build a home, they would lend me the money, but I had to build it on the west side of town. Uh, so I thought about and that was in the 70s, yeah. you know, back in 73, 74. And I, I thought about it, and I, I thought about the things that actually I grew up with in Carbondale and then uh, how my class of 1967 was such a, a good class that mm-hmm. we got along real well. So I thought about what really made the difference that uh, Carbondale started to be more relaxed and more friendly to to all, to all races. Mm-hmm. And it got to thinking about 1967 was it. That's I, And I can tell people what happened, what I feel what happened. Mm-hmm. I can tell them how I was treated prior to 1967 and how I was treated after 1967. Mm-hmm. And I talked to Corrine about it and she said oh okay all right well you ought to write stuff down you talk about stuff all the time but you never write it down uh, (laughs) I thought well you know maybe we can just write a book about it Mm -hmm. and that's how it come out (laughs) that's just how it came to be that's how it came to be oh well and let's see if I can get my transitions right here so that's one down that's two down and uh it's going to be about how this comes to be uh, a return to the podcast after a little bit of a hiatus for episode 97 of the WTF Carbondale podcast, where we talked to interesting people about their interesting lives. And we tie it all back to this little old place we call home, Carbondale, Illinois. And, and my guest here and now, uh, a man who, if somebody needs an introduction to you, they need an introduction to Carbondale as a whole. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what we serve to suit here. But uh, Milton McDaniel, thank you for taking the time to chat with me. Well, thank you for uh, offering me to come out. Yeah, I appreciate it. So, so you are you are Carbondale, born and raised. I'm what they call a Carbonite. <laughs> yes, uh, born and raised in 1949, and actually, uh, I've lived in Carbondale all my life except for one year. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Uh, after working, being hired out on the railroad, I uh, moved to East St. Louis because that's the only place I could hold a job was in East St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And we moved away for one year. And actually during that first year that I moved away from that, I was actually recruited to come back to Carbondale mm-hmm. by two young men to break into the construction trade. Mm-hmm. And I took them up on the offer and... Uh, I did, so in 1968, after my first child was born, I came back to Carbondale. (laughs) Oh, man, it's just that kind of place that you can try and get away from, but it's always going to pull you right back. It's a place I call home. (laughs) And by that time, of course, I was married, and I can say with our first child that was born in East St. Louis, and uh, actually, I had to come back and start my job, which was in sheet metal, and I... I was the first black to actually go into sheet metal in, the, in the, all of southern Illinois, if not of all of Illinois. Wow. And I uh, was asked to do that to get into the construction trade so people of color 
more could get into that. And uh, at that time, I, I agreed, like I said, to come back to Carbondale and do that. And after the baby was born, my wife joined me back in Carbondale, and we've been here ever since. Now, did you and where did you and Corrine meet originally? Do you do you know? Is that still a story that you have in the hopper that she'll correct you on if you if you need it at no, any point actually, time? <laughs> actually, we met at uh, where the big clock is on campus. Uh huh. Is that Pullman Hall? Pull, is Pulliam. Pulliam. I think, Pulliam. I think so. I'm not 100 percent okay, sure, but. Uh, Actually, that's where we actually met at was there. And then uh, she had two sisters that was in school up here. And uh, our first date was because I had a couple of vehicles and my friend wanted me to double date with him. And instead of double dating, I said, take one of my cars. And he <laughs> said, no, I, I need you to go along because she has a sister. And I, she don't want to go without her sister. So I said, okay. And that was our first date. Uh, <laughs> was that way? Oh, that is a that's a wonderful story. Well, yes. I mean, I guess I've been threatening to uh, get back at him for introducing me, you know, <laughs> but it's been fifty-four years, so I guess it worked out. <laughs> hmm? Who? Who? I mean, because you because you and Kareen do a lot together. I mean, you each have your own activities, but you're just as much together on everything that you do as you might be apart. I mean, is it, is it just, I mean, having a partner in life to do all of these things with? Well, uh, Corrine is a more of a, uh, outgoing person for the, uh, I would say, you know, for the community mm -hmm. as far as, you know, like she being on the city council and all of that. Mm -hmm. And, I'm kind of more or less laid back. I like to do what I do without anybody knowing that I'm doing it. You know, uh, <laughs> I, I love counseling. I've been counseling for years, uh, you know, Christian counseling and stuff. But I, I, I'm kind of like under the, the behind the scenes. I mm -hmm. don't want to use the word under the cover. <laughs> <laughs> Let's scratch that out. <laughs> behind the scenes is something better. <laughs> the uh, well, I mean, and what what all what all have you done over the years? I mean, I'm sure at different points and in, in life, you know that that kind of behind the scenes service has taken different forms. I mean, what all have you done over the years that have? Well, uh, what. Uh, my sheet metal uh, becoming a journeyman in 1974. Mm -hmm. I started uh, my own heating and air. I got my journeyman's card, and I kind of left quality sheet metal. That's where I took my apprenticeship at. Mm -hmm. And I started my own business, McDaniel and McDaniel Heating and Air Condition, mm -hmm. as well as still working for the railroad. And I knew I lived in a poor community, so I helped my community as well as other people in Carbondale, but people that could not afford furnaces and stoves and stuff like that. I did it at, at no charge. Mm -hmm. And it was something that made me feel good because I was doing something for my community. And to this day, a lot of people never knew that I had my own business yeah. because they just called me and said, you know, I have a nickname. I don't know if I ought to say my nickname on, on camera or not, but uh, <laughs> they, they would just call up and, and, and they would uh, ask for Chubby. Uh -huh. You know, that's, that was my nickname. That was uh, what I grew up in the neighborhood is Chevy. Uh -huh. And if I could come over and no heat, you know, I can remember one family, Corrine and I were on our way to Ben Harbor, Michigan, 
and they called me and uh, asked me if I could come help them get some heat in the house because a 16-year-old daughter was coming home with a brand-new baby. Uh-huh. And I thought, oh, me, you know, we're, we're supposed to be leaving this evening headed to Ben Hover, Michigan. But for the next eight hours, I laid underneath the house <laughs> and uh, getting them some heat in that yeah. so that she could bring that baby home. And it threw us back going to Ben Harbor. And when I got out, they said, you know, I don't know how we can pay you. I said, thanks is all I need. Yeah. And, and I felt good that I was able to do that. And I've been that way all my life. Yeah. I grew up in a family of 11 kids. And my dad was the type of dad that always worked and did whatever he could to make sure his family was taken care of. And from that, I learned it's better to give than to receive. Now, where are you at in the pecking order in terms of all 11 children? I'm, I'm number five. Number five. I'm number five. There was nine boys and two girls. <laughs> and I'm the fifth son. Yeah. Ah, uh, that's great. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, and that's a, you know, the... Is the is the entrepreneurial spirit a, a you know something that has kind of been handed down generation to generation as well? Just that put in the hard work and and give what you can, and in return, you know, you'll get the most that you can out of life. Well, yeah, I I, I actually I see I, I see my daddy do it, but I learned it from my grandmother. Uh huh. My grandmother was uh, she was part Cherokee Indian, and she uh, she really had to work her way because she was come out of the South, mm-hmm. and she knew. If she wanted anything in life, she had to work for it, yeah. you know, even just to be treated halfway, you know, decent. Now, I ain't going to say equal, just be decent. Yeah. And she taught me at uh, five years old, I made my first $5 helping her do a garden, and I never looked back. <laughs> what did, what, were, there, were there things that you did, uh, you know, as a kid? Like, were, you know, did you have different... Uh, you know, you know whether it's whether it's work or businesses or what have you that that kind of planted the seeds for later on in life. You know, it's funny that you should ask that because yes, I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, with that five dollars, I bought a bike. And by the time I was eight years old, I was helping one of the neighbors help uh, carrying him lumber and stuff to help build a little uh, house that he was going to do a store with, Mr. Mm-hmm. Campbell. And with the money he paid me. I bought a little flyer, a Western Flyer wagon. Uh-huh. And with that Western Flyer wagon, I uh, made money with it by every month the people in the community would get uh, government commodities. Mm-hmm. And we had a lot of uh, older women in the neighborhood or widow women that didn't want to go stand in the line or couldn't go stand in the line. Mm-hmm. So I would offer to go stand in the line for them. <laughs> and at 25 cents a family, uh-huh. I would go stand in the line with my little red wagon and bring it back to their house. And I did that at eight years old and uh, continued to work on since then. <laughs> you had a logistics company I had, I had, at eight years old. At eight years old, I had a, <laughs> I had a business going on, yes. And... Uh, the people in the neighborhood was quite pleased, you know, uh, that uh, I was able to do that for them. And I was happy not only was I making money, but I was doing something for the people in which, uh, like I say, in our neighborhood, we was all a tight neighborhood, a very yeah. loving neighborhood. And I was able to give back to the older people that had, you know, kept an eye on me. Yeah. What, what was it like growing up in and, and having that sense of community 
you know, just just living in the space that you were, you know, not like it is today. You know, we just don't have the same kind of neighborly lifestyle throughout the country, right? It's, it, there's just not that same kind of everybody knows everybody, everybody's kind of taking care of everybody type of feeling. Well, you know, I, I like to say the neighborhood, we were very, very close neighborhood. And since my mom had 11 kids, mm -hmm. <laughs> there was older ladies or widows in the neighborhood that didn't have anybody. So she would let uh, us, I, I would stay with one of my neighbors next door and make sure that sometime her, all her kids was gone. Her last son was in the military. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was a little sickly. So at night after school, I would go make sure I got her coal in. And then I'd stay there with her at nighttime and then get up in the morning, go next back home next door yeah. and get ready to go to school. And later on in life, my sister stayed with one of the ladies down the street because her husband worked in Springfield and she was a teacher. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, my sister stayed with her uh, to help her have someone there with her. Mm -hmm. And my older sister stayed with another young uh, lady that was uh, very influent at SIU. Uh, she had no family down here. So, uh, yeah, as kids, we, we, we were glad to help other people out, but we were taught that from the family. Yeah. Uh, Actually, uh, I'm gonna put in a plug for my own self. I've written a song uh -huh. called "Looking Back at Memories of Home," and just the first line said, "I had a hard-working father and a good-loving mother." Looking back at memories of home, and uh, it goes on to talk about different things uh, in the home that uh, had me to uh, make that song. And I didn't write that until probably two or three days after my dad had passed and I sung it for the rest of my family and his, uh, at his home going. That's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and you know, it, the, just like we were watching the video the other day and, and going back over you singing for, for Hughes Memorial. Mm -hmm. I mean, just, you know, you've got to, you've got a presence, right? Cause it's not just about the voice. It's about a presence in a place that just, you know, tugs on everybody's emotions. Is it, has it always been that way? Was music always in that position in your life? Well, no. Uh, I wanted to be a professional ball player because coming out of eighth grade, I was six foot tall. Uh huh. Uh, along with a couple other people, and I said, you know, I want to be a professional ball player. That was basketball. And uh, my later part, my junior year, I got hurt, and my dream of basketball or any kind of sports went down the drain. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that time, since I got hurt on the school property, they sent me to be evaluated to see what I could do in life. And they, I was told I could never make a living with my hands uh, in life, so they asked me <laughs> to go to school to be uh, a social worker. That mm -hmm. I had scored one of the highest scores ever as, at uh, SIU for social work, and they said we will pay uh, pay for all of your tuitions for the whole four years huh. if you want to be a social worker. Uh, you know, because they felt kind of guilty that I got hurt at school in the basketball playing basketball, <laughs> and uh, I said no. I graduated in May of 1967 and I started on the railroad in August of 1967. 
I wanted to prove to myself I could do something with my hands that they said I couldn't do. Yeah. And for 50 years and up to now, I'm still doing it, you know. And it was just uh, a way of saying I'm not going to let my injury put me down to do just one thing. Yeah. And I still have the injury today. Um, there's certain things I can't do, but there's a lot of things that I can. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, <laughs> you surely haven't let it slow you down or stop you in any way, shape, or form. No. <laughs> now, the what, what in your railroad career sticks out? I, I know that I've read something on on one of one of many news articles out there about you being the first black person to do something with the railroad in Illinois, but I couldn't remember exactly what that was. I am the first African American fireman slash locomotive engineer okay. to run a train north of the Ohio River. Okay. Uh, so that, uh, I never even thought about that until somebody uh, uh, brought it up. And it just so happens that uh, when I was inducted in Chicago, that not only uh, for transportation, but my so sheet metal local are all part of the together now. So mm -hmm. I was inducted there, and I had a 50-year, uh, I have lifetime uh, for being in, in the local. But that was my biggest uh, achievement, and I didn't consider that achievement. I considered the biggest achievement to me was doing what everybody told me I couldn't do. Yeah. I had other engineers that tell me, we're not going to teach you how to run a train because you shouldn't even be here. Yeah. And it so happens that there was a couple people that was from Southern Illinois that were engineers, and they took me under their wing because uh, people around the East St. Louis area said, no, we're not doing it. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I'm, thank God for people right that had two engineers, one from right here in Carbondale, with last, known, last name was Eastwood, and another one from the Viana area, last name was Lawrence. And knowing that I was from Carbondale, they took me under their wing and showed me how, taught me and showed me how to run an engine. And it seems like whether it's race, ability, or otherwise, one of your drivers, if somebody tells you that you can't do something. I'm going to do it. <laughs> I'm going to do it, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, 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 I love to, I, I guess, it's the determination uh, because of my ability to be able to do things. I've had times to where, um, as an engineer out there, that if I had a head crew, and they would tell me, I can remember one of the hardest things that I had to do. I had a big train and Cobden, there's a hill going up Cobden going south. Mm -hmm. And that's the biggest hill on the Illinois Central from Chicago to New Orleans. Okay. And the train that I had that night, they kept telling me I was going to have to double the train, which means they had to cut it in two and take part to Anna and then come back and get the other. Mm -hmm. And I refused to double my train so... I put my train in creep mm -hmm. mode, and it would just go real slow. I got a bucket of sand out of the nose of the bucket, got down off my engine, and I sand the rail in front of my engine as it creeped over hmm. that hill. Uh -huh. And I had head men on there that was not my color that wanted me to fail. 
Mm -hmm. But through the grace of God, that train, along with me putting sand on that rail, it could have slipped. If it had slipped and broken knuckle, it would have killed me dead. Mm -hmm. But I had someone more powerful than the crew that was on that train <laughs> that was watching over me. Huh. And uh, for that night that uh, I kind of gained some uh, respect from the guys that, you know, that was on the rear end, mm -hmm. anyhow, of the train that we made it over to Cobden Hill. So I've had a lot of things, uh, you know, same way at Pinckneyville, doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. I would get out and put sand in front of my train in order to get it to where it needed to go. That So I have a determination that I don't like the word that said I can't. I like the word that said I can, I can. I think I can, I think I can. <laughs> I did. <laughs> and that's really, you know, coming from the, I, you know, I don't even know how old the, the, uh, the little engine that could story is <laughs> well, and that's it that i was asked to write a book of my times and experience on the railroad mm -hmm. and uh and i thought about it and i said if i did write a book it would be a little choo-choo train on the front of the cover and it would say i think i can i think i can and then at the bottom in big letters it says i did <laughs> i made that hill i made it so. <laughs> oh my gosh that's uh and in working, you know, machinery now is not, I'm, I'm sure, is, is nothing like what it was when you started, you know, bending sheet metal, mm -hmm. moving trains, you know, working on furnaces and, and all that. So what is what has it been like just getting to observe the development of technology in these fields over time and just working with that with your hands Oh, you know, I, I look now with the trains that come through Carbondale, and uh, they have now, you know, they got big trains, and they still run huge, huge trains mm -hmm. now. But they have engines. You may see an engine in the middle, engine mm -hmm. on the rear. Uh, you know, they have what they call pushers. And we didn't have that ability to have pushers when I first started out. So uh, mm -hmm. now they got pushers, so they don't have to worry about getting out sand in the rails because all, you know, they just pull back on the throttle and uh -huh. get another notch because all the engines are, are synchronized. Mm -hmm. So you got power front, back, and middle now. And huh. that, that type of technology thought, man, I wish I had had that back in my day. Right. You know, and uh, sheet metal, uh, <clears throat> I, I think about uh, probably the, the first time job that I had in, in sheet metal, the first place they sent me was to Viana Prison to help build the prison at Viana mm -hmm. down there. And uh, that was probably my first time that I almost lost my life and I hadn't been on the job very long. Mm -hmm. uh, I got uh, knocked off a ladder by a crane that was hauling a load and uh, knocked me off the ladder and I fell down into the boiler room. But just about a piece of plywood is what I fell on, only kept me from uh, being killed. And I think now, you know, they got so much technology now, you know, with cranes and stuff like that, that never would have happened. Yeah. You know, uh, so I, I look at it, and, and back then we did sheet metal. We bent it with a with a brake, and now they push a button. Yeah. They, they push a button now, and <laughs> out comes, a, a, you know, a, a drive or, or whatever, or a, the it bends the metal form, mm -hmm. and we had to do all of that by hand. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. So I just the the craftsmanship that ha that goes into something like that. Yeah, I mean yeah. that really is 
all yeah. hands. It, it took you. It uh, we had to have four years of apprenticeship, and that four years of apprenticeship, if you didn't know what you were doing, mm-hmm. you did not get uh, your certificate to be a journeyman. Yeah. So yeah, you really had to buckle down. We didn't have the buttons to push. You had to have it all in your mind. And actually, I had to go to West Frankfort back in '68 to go to school. Mm-hmm. So a little black boy <laughs> going to West Frankfort at tonight school over there. T- it was a little different, so I thank God there was another young black man that was hired about uh, within a year after I did, and so we went back and forth to West Frankfurt together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, were I mean, were there times where, <laughs> you know, I mean, just just flat out that that it was dangerous to pursue education or a line of work or something else like that, just by virtue of being a black man in Southern Illinois in certain parts of Southern Illinois, or by that point were you was were things in a position where it was safer to exist in some of these places uh it was starting to get better you okay. know uh, time the 70s came uh, and it started to get a little better i uh i remember uh helping to build the bank in anna the bank uh, bank of anna right on the corner there and every morning going to anna i would get that funny funny look like you know i'd have my little toolbox going in to work, and everybody treated me kind of with a, uh, you know, shrugged shoulder. I mean, they never did anything to me. I, they never called me out of my name or anything, but they treated me different from mm-hmm. the rest of the, my workers I was with. And I was just telling somebody the other day, it was kind of funny. I said, uh, Tam, we got the bank, and we got our stuff built in and everything. We forgot to put in a hole in the vault for ventilation. Uh-huh. So if somebody robbed them and they got put in the vault, they had no way to pass some food or get air into the vault, mm-hmm. and they would all perish. Mm-hmm. And so they called my boss at Quality Sheet Metal and said, we need to get ventilation put in here. And I was sent back to cut a hole in 12 inches of concrete <laughs> oh, to wow. get a, a ventilation. And I will say, I went to the ear doctor about three or four times after that. Mm-hmm. But uh, I gained a lot of friends <laughs> uh-huh. after I got them a vent cut into their vault where uh-huh. they, if they were to get uh, you know, caught. So every morning I come in with my jackhammer and everything, I was welcome yeah. know, because I was coming to, uh, to uh, make a vent into the vault form. <laughs> you know, so I guess a lot of times you do things and you gain, uh, you know, gain faith in in the worker. You know, so yeah. but it's been an experience. Sheet metal was probably just as bad as, uh, as discrimination, if not worse, because of the places that I worked in. Like I said, Vienna was number one, Chester, uh, and places like that. So, uh, you know, uh, it was not always, you know sugar and spice mm-hmm. but once again i had determination to get my journeyman's card yeah and it was kind of funny once i got my journeyman's card i bought a brand new car <laughs> went up to east st louis parked it in front of the local union mm-hmm. and i accepted my journeyman's card parked it where everybody had to go buy my brand new car and and they wanted and it was a special made car i had it special made uh-huh whose car was that and uh and then nobody knew so after i got my journeyman's card i said everybody wanted to know whose car that was uh it's my it's my car and they said your car i said yeah it's my car and i said and by the way i got my journeyman's card now i resigned from sheet metal 
I'm done. I got what I wanted. Got in my new car and drove off and didn't look back. So it w- throughout your career, have you always been part of a union then, or was it just for certain parts of, of certain careers? Well, how, how, did, how does that work? See, I've only had two, two uh, jobs, and okay. yes, and I have a lifetime now in both of them because they're all, they're all of the same. So I'm a lifetime member of the union now. Uh, yes, so to answer your question, from day one, yeah, I've always been a union, and I do believe in unions. Matter of fact, uh, that you asked that, <laughs> in East St. Louis, probably my first union meeting, I know it was, my first mm-hmm. union meeting, we went to uh, the bowling alley where everybody always went to have union meetings, mm-hmm. and uh Everybody ordered what they wanted before the meeting started, which it was alcohol, you mm-hmm. know. And I was not asked what I wanted. And um, the uh, chairman of the of the meeting, he said, uh, Mac, what are you drinking? And I said, I don't know. I have the waitress that hasn't asked me. She hadn't waited on me. So he called her over, and he said, oh, why haven't you asked him what he wanted to drink? And she says, I don't think he's old enough. And uh, the guy that I was sitting with, he, him and I was the same age, and she had gave, brought him his beer. Mm-hmm. And uh, she said, besides, he shouldn't even be in here. Mm. And the union man said, what you, what'd you just say? He said, uh, he shouldn't even be in here. He's not allowed in here. And... I, I thank God for people with good sense. Yeah. The union chairman at that moment said, hey, everybody, finish your drink. We're leaving here, and we're never coming back, and don't worry about paying for what you just drank. No. Yeah. And that was the last time we ever had a union meeting in that bowling alley, and we went down the street from then on to a bar, and I was accepted. Yeah. And, of course, I, I've never drank the day in my life, so... Her <laughs> not serving me didn't hurt. Uh-huh. I never drank and I never smoked, so that never bothered me. Yeah, you know that's that's that one action seems so indicative of the power of acting together in unison, as, especially as a union. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My the, my people and I was only black in the union, but the thing of it is, I was part of the union. Yeah, BFL and E Brotherhood of Locomotive Firemen and Engineers. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's a little bit of a mouthful, but that's yes, not too is. bad. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so have you all, have you always been into cars too? Yes. When when uh, what was the, the? Here's a good one. This oh I love I love this one. Do you remember the first time you drove a car? Uh yeah. How young were you when you first drove a car? I was about 15 and I snuck it out and my daddy didn't know I, I, I got it. But uh, yeah, about 15. But uh, And actually, uh, he taught us all, all his boys, he taught us all how to drive uh-huh. because if we ever needed to go to the farm or, or somewhere or whatever. So he taught us all how to drive. And uh, I had that ambition that, okay, daddy, I'm going to get my own car in. So... Uh, at 16, I got my driver's license, and uh, I bought my first car at 16. <laughs> and, of course, he wouldn't let me drive it because I couldn't get insurance for it. So it sat in the, in the front of the house, uh-huh. and I washed it every day. And it was, you're talking about have I always been in the cars. 
It was a 1957 Ford, mm -hmm. red and white, hard top retractable. Wow. And uh, th it was a beautiful car. I used to just go out there because I couldn't, he wouldn't let me go anywhere. And <laughs> I'd go out there and push the button and let the top go back in the trunk, you know, and until uh, I was able to afford insurance. And, uh -huh. and then once I got insurance, uh, he, he did let me drive it. And uh, then when I was 17, since I was working, my, you know, I had a couple of jobs I was working, I bought a 1959 Oldsmobile two-door hardtop 98. Mm -hmm. And I used, used to park them both in front of the house, side by side, you know. Only 16-year-old in the neighborhood with two automobiles. And I think <laughs> that's how I got that wife over <laughs> <laughs> Well, <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh, that's funny. That's funny. Now, is it... Have, do you work on cars too? Is that, or, or you just yeah. kind of like them and I own them, and then like somebody them. else can mess with them? Yeah, I, I know nothing about working on them. <laughs> I, I just like them. Yes. Oh, that's and, funny. And, and I, I kind of like uh, uh, different cars. You know, after we uh, got married, I think uh, I'd said I'd, I'd never smoked in my life. One five nickel cigar. I had bought a, a brand new convert. Well, it wasn't brand new. Bought a, Convertible, 1965 Oldsmobile Cutlass convertible, red mm -hmm. and white. And she didn't know I'd bought it. Uh, <laughs> she was at Carbon <laughs> So I, I bought Y'all can't see it, but Karina's over there right now just nodding her head. <laughs> I bought it while she was in Carbondale with, with the family uh, in Collinsville. And I decided I'm going to drive it home. And when I got in Pinkneville... I thought I'd just be a big shot. Uh -huh. So I stopped and I bought a nickel cigar. And I let the top down and I drove on down. And the time I got to Carbondale, I was drunk as a skunk <laughs> from a nickel cigar. And I said, I never, ever smoke again. And I never did. But I, I want to show off. I want to show my red and white convertible, yeah. you know, off. And uh, smoking a cigar, I thought I would impress people and see it. I got sick from the city. <laughs> yeah. And she went along with the car. She liked it after I got there because she had sisters to impress. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Always got to impress the sisters. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, yeah, you know, that's not, that's not a bad, you know, to be a trophy husband, I guess, is what we're saying here, Milton. <laughs> it's not an awful place to occupy. <laughs> mm -hmm. no, I've had some good years. Marriage has been good to me, so. Uh, like I said, I think we're going on 54, uh, 54, 55, and there, everybody has some ups and downs, you know. Yeah. And I tell everybody in, in, in uh, counseling, and everybody say marriage is a 50-50, and uh, that's sometimes, it's not always. Yeah. You know, if and I would make this illustration to them. I said, you all know what a GTO that was one of the most powerful cars with the big motors in mm -hmm. my days coming up. If you took two GTOs and put them back to back and put a chain in between them and said, go, neither one of them is going nowhere. Yeah. Because they got the same power and they're going to sit there and spin and wear themselves out and blow the motor. Marriage is the same way. Mm -hmm. Sometimes somebody's got to give 1% if that marriage is going to go and last. Don't have to be the same person every time. Yeah. But if you say we're equal, we're not, yeah, we're equal in marriage, but when it comes to keeping this marriage together and different decisions, yeah. somebody has to yield. 
Yeah. And like I said, it's not always the husband and not always the wife. But that's the only way you can make a marriage work, uh, knowing that there is, has to be that little bit there to give. Well, and it's it's easy to model. You know, what what little bit of time I've, I've had the privilege of spending with you and Kareen over the past handful of years you know it, it's just easy to easy to see what makes a good marriage like your two's work and how to just take it mm-hmm. and 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 put it in practice somewhere else mm-hmm. right in somebody else's marriage i just i just think of maria and 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 you know that that analogy of sometimes one of you's given it the all while the others taking a rest and sometimes yeah. those roles are 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 switched up Reverse. because that's you know exactly that's right. yes. that's what we're there for. Yeah. You know, you've mm-hmm. you've got to you've got to have somebody that you can lean on or somebody that can lean on you whenever the need be. That's right. That's <laughs> right. So true. Uh, yeah. So how many how how many kids did you and Kareen have? Well, I'll put it this way: I got half of what I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> did you you wanted a big family like what you come from? Yes, I did. <laughs> we got two. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I asked for five. And I got two, and I think she was kind of like, okay, we can have five. If I have the first one, you have the second one, you know, <laughs> we can get to five. But if I got to have them all, you're not getting five out of me. So I got two. And she said, you know, when we got it, she got us a boy, a son. I got a son. That was going to be it. Yeah. And the second one was a boy, so that was it. That worked out okay. It worked out, yeah. I got a daughter. Grandbabies, too? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that Grandbabies is better than the kids, you know. To <laughs> because have you can always hand them back, you right? Can, yeah, you can always send them home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh mm-hmm. uh, well, no, I, you know, I, I think of it, and this is this is one of the things that really, uh, you know, makes why I want to get uh, Zanetta on the the podcast as well. Uh, you know, I had uh, I had Marsha. Um, oh my gosh, why did I just forget Marsha's last name? Marsha Senate. Thank you, Marsha Senate. Thank you. Uh, and she talked about having Zanetta in, in grade school. And it's just like all of these relationships and all these connections that, you know, that, that this piece of media is really about putting on display. How do we how do we get all of these stories that exist mm-hmm. out there for people to know that, yeah, you may be neighbors with somebody or you may know this, that, the other, but really like. Lots of people have a lot of really close personal ties with one another just by virtue of mm-hmm. having spent so much time together in this town. Well, you tell me, uh, Miss Senate, and I say Miss Senate, you know, because been, she was a teacher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, but I, I've known her, but uh, you know, I've been Santa Claus. Hope no kids are watching. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. No, no. This is this is. Yeah, we're <laughs> we're mo- we're mostly older folks <laughs> for uh, the last twenty four years. Uh-huh. I kept saying I was going to retire, and Miss Senate. Every time she got a chance, she would take a picture on Santa Claus' lap. And she says, see, I always want to ask Santa Claus, what am I getting for Christmas? <laughs> and, and, you know, I thought, you know, if your husband keeps saying you sitting on my lap all the time, what you may get for Christmas is a switch. And she just <laughs> laughed, you know. <laughs> but Miss Cena is a good lady, a very good friend. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, where, where, when... When did you start? You said twenty-four years ago. What was what was the first impetus for you to be Santa Claus? What? Oh, uh, I had was persuaded by somebody that's been with me for years. Mm-hmm. 
Miss McDaniel belonged to one of the Rotary Clubs. Is that correct? The Breakfast Rotary, Breakfast Rotary Club. Club. Very good. And they asked her about uh, the kids in the neighborhood, you know, for Christmas. And would she be willing, if the Rotary bought the toys, go out and shop for them? Uh-huh. And she agreed. And uh, she asked me at that time if I go with them and help shop for kids. I said, yeah. Well, then she said, but we need a Santa Claus to give them out. And I thought, well, so let's find us a Santa Claus. And she kind of <laughs> looked at me. She said, no, we need a Santa Claus to give them out. We, the royal yeah, we, yeah, me yeah, and you, we. And we. <laughs> yeah. And that was in 1997. And uh, I've been Santa Claus ever since, 1997. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, it, you know, 97 would have still been before, you know, there was really an acknowledgement for a need of not just a white clad Santa Claus, just like, you know, any mm -hmm. number of other, you know, mm -hmm. figures that, that we have in our lives yeah. that, uh, yeah. that we only portray as white when we might not ought or should only portray them and as you know, white. The good thing about it through the 24 years, I probably had maybe three people to question, uh, my, uh, ability to be Santa Claus mm -hmm. and the color I was. Mm -hmm. And one of the kids might have said something, but it was the other two was the parents. Yeah. Uh, the kids just, they just hop on Santa's lap and that's it. You yeah. know, they don't see no color. Uh, they, uh, they see a red suit and a white beard <laughs> and, and a bag and, full of toys. And, and, <laughs> and a yeah, looking at the bag down there. So, okay, son, I'm, I'm, that's enough talking now. Give me my bag. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, uh, and that's probably three three times over the whole twenty four years, yeah. which makes it so great. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure on the other side of it, there were there were some kids that definitely did see it that said, "Yeah, you know what? Yeah, yeah no, it's not just white Santa Claus yeah. <laughs> out yeah. there." And mm -hmm. the importance mm -hmm. of that to some of yeah. those kids. Ah, that's great. <laughs> that's great. The um, so the uh, the African American Museum mm -hmm. would did that when when did that when did you all start that? Because it was you and Kareen that founded it. Is that correct? Uh, let, let, let's, let's, let, I'm, I'm going to correct you. Very it, good. Please it do. It was Kareen and me. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> 1997 again. Oh, okay. So that yeah. was, all right. So that was 1997, 1997 as well. again. Yes. Yeah. It was, uh, I shouldn't probably say it on camera, but it was Kareen's dream and her mind and her thoughts and my money. <laughs> uh, so the uh, was was it always in the mall oh or has it okay how how did that all start out uh we were asked by different classes and like I said Corinne at that time she was already involved with rotary clubs and and you know uh, out into the public and uh we were asked to come to different locations you know to show mm -hmm. off uh black artifacts and stuff uh so we we started traveling and corinne was a quilt maker well it still is a quilt maker mm -hmm. and we had a lot of blocks of the underground railroad she made a underground railroad uh -huh. so the biggest thing when we first started off was going to schools talking about the underground railroad because everybody you know had heard about the underground railroad but nobody really knew what it was yeah so, uh, we started going to places like viana to the high schools there and Anna Jonesboro and you know all all the little white towns yeah. wanted to know 
Uh, of course, I didn't go and sign them. We just went, you know, <laughs> as, as a married couple yeah. at, through the African American Museum. And uh, we would teach them about black history, what black history was about, and how the migration, you know, of the Negro that came up from the South, you mm -hmm. know, and stuff like that. And we, we had different artifacts to show them, you know. And uh, that's how we started going around, and we kept everything at our house, under the bed, as she says, and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and she studied, made quilt blocks, you know, to, uh, and uh, through the Methodist Church, we went as far as uh, Shelbyville, Illinois, wow. uh, to talk to them about, you know, the, the migration of the, the slaves from the south to the north uh, through the African American Museum and uh, talk with them at the church and stuff. So we, we'll go any, we've been many places and we'll go anywhere that anybody asks us to come to. I think that still stands even for today. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, and you know, just just having done some recording in in the space over the over the weekend, or heck, pushing the chair down the hallway, or pushing the table down the hallway here a couple months ago, whatever. Yeah, right. <laughs> Thank goodness for the twins, right? I mean, it's it's having having. When kids hit that age that you can start getting them to flex their muscles, it makes yep. all the difference yep. on things. Uh, you know, that's that's some of that perspective. You know, folks that may not be parents yet don't understand the value. Yeah, I mean, maybe there's a age range from from you know zero to eight where you know you got to do a lot of cleaning up and some you know some some butt powdering and some and some snotty nose wiping. But mm -hmm. uh, once they get to a to a certain age, they become pretty useful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, but no, I mean it's a you know it's a it's a it's a lovely. It's a lovely space as it as it sits now, and just well, to have, you. you know, something that that folks can can learn from. I, I hadn't realized mm -hmm. that you know it was really the the ability to not just make a space to invite people to, but really taking it to folks and to young people that needed to you know hear mm -hmm. stories yeah. that they may otherwise not be exposed to in right. their you know relatively uh, you know, narrow scope of, of learning in school. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So no, that makes, that makes sense. Now you were talking about counseling, right? Whether, and, and, I, and I don't know whether this was, you know, would, would be kind of marriage counseling with folks through, through a church group or just general counseling, but like over the course of, of the years, have you always found yourself in positions of, of where you've kind of utilized that, that early on noticed skill of, of being empathetic and being able to communicate with folks? Have you just found yourself kind of always in a natural counseling position uh, for those around you? Well, um, it, and it did start in church even after, like I say, after high school, when I wouldn't go into that. Mm -hmm. uh, when we moved back to Carbondale, uh, and I became part of the, the church here at Carbondale, uh, one of the positions that I was given was to be counseling and it was normally with married couples or you know in the church here mm -hmm. and uh so it's kind of been something that uh, it's kind of like it's god given you yeah. know i've always had a, a, a soft spot for people that have different needs you know and, and whatever i can do to help them out uh, you know i uh, had a, a little part of the started up in it little business I started it's called challenging the mind to motivate mm -hmm. the soul and uh, I always thought if I could challenge your mind enough to know right from wrong 
you know, and what, what you can do in life, I'll motivate you enough for you to go out to do that. Yeah. And we've been foster parents, and we got children that came really? to us that was, you know, had terrible experience in the rear. Mm-hmm. And it, that part of us, that both of us had to do a lot of counseling there uh, in order to make those kids feel like they were in a safe home. Yeah. Yeah. So, how many how many kids have you guys fostered over the years? Quite a few. Yeah. Right? Cuz that started back in uh in the 90s as well, didn't it? Yeah, I think yeah. I think yeah. Do you do you I mean and whether whether it's folks that you've that you've gotten to, you know, participate in with counseling, folks that you've you know, folks that you've been, uh, you know, able to foster, folks that you've just worked with and been able to mentor in in the workspace, right? Do you, are you one of those folks that, that really draws on the value of watching somebody else's story develop over time, right? Where you've put in a little bit of work on the front end, but they've decided that they're determined and they want to put in a lot of work on themselves. And then you see the result of that 10, 20, 30 years down the line. Well, no, not really on the, in the, on the workplace. Uh, probably my biggest thing in the workplace uh, is not uh, I had one of the, my head men that, uh, that was also one of the guys I went to school with here at Carbondale. Mm-hmm. He had been married for uh, 16 years. And uh, on his 16th wedding anniversary, he got off from work, and we were working in Benton. He got off from work, and he came home. And his wife had packed up all her, her belongings, and she told him on his 16th wedding anniversary, it's over. And uh, he wanted to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't want to live through it. And uh, through my talking to him and telling him, uh, you know, that's not the, the way to go, and trying to, you know, console him, yeah. uh, to this day he's happily married and has been now. Uh, she they had no kids together his first marriage yeah. he has a son now and uh, he's been happily married probably for the last 25 or 30 years now so there is a real yeah. tangible yeah you know this yeah. this person is here because yeah. at the time that they needed you to be there you were there for yeah. them mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah that's a feeling that's and, and makes you know that that uh Whatever God put in your heart that you think that you can do, there's a reason for it. Yeah. You know, uh, I, you know, things that I like to do, I like I like to sing, but I can write some commercials that should be at the Super Bowl while I was sitting in the tracks at, on on the job waiting for another train to go by. I I write up a commercial, you know, and uh, <laughs> and I offered a couple of commercials to Coca-Cola, which was very good, and they said. Uh, we don't hire off the street. And in fact, if if you're as good as you say you are, you would have to come to the Bronx and work. We don't do it long distance. Mm-hmm. So there went that. <laughs> but, uh, my, my mind wonders. I never really, it never really seems to cease. My mind just wonders all the time. So yeah. while I was wondering, I put it to work. Did the, did the train give your mind space to to do that wondering? Yes, is because I sat in sidings of many a day, of many a night waiting on another train, if you're on single track. Uh-huh. And on single track, like especially from uh, what we call the cutoff from Bend to uh, Fulton, Kentucky, I would run that line over there. And there were several times that you would get set in the, 
in the bypass waiting for another train to come that I'd, I'd be there sometimes 40, 50 minutes, sometimes longer than that, you know, mm -hmm. it's according if the train, you know, was on time. So during that time, sitting there, instead of listening to the, the other guys or, or getting involved with them and, and they're misbehaving, that's all I'll say, <laughs> uh, they're misbehaving, I would uh, sit there and write uh, poems or, or write commercials and stuff. Yeah. Did you write for Kareen? No, instead of writing for her, I actually just made songs for her. I, I, I made up a song, and, uh -huh. uh, and I would, well, I, I made songs for her, and I would sing to her. So as far as putting it on pen, no, I've never done it. Yeah, I forgot, because you told me that. You told me that everything that you do is just... It's in my head. ...is in your head. Yeah. yeah. What, what is... Does that ever present challenges, working to... Because, and, and I will say this as, as a person who is not musically inclined in the least bit whatsoever, right? That, that to have two separate things, the, the music, the actual instrumental, you know, this is what you hear in your head and this is what you want folks to actually, you know, play with a guitar or a, or a you know, woodwind instrument or a drum or what have you. Mm -hmm. And then there's the other side of it, which is just the actual lyrics themselves, I mean, how do those things come together in your in your mind, and how do they stay there? I mean, and I, you may not even have an answer to it, right? Because we can't always just answer. Well, this is where the muse comes from, right? We just know that the muse comes. Well, <laughs> and and you're right. Uh, my my biggest thing of it is I write the songs and I know the melody, mm -hmm. and they're in my head. So and and I don't play an instrument at all. Yeah. So I know the melody, and I'll get with people that do play the instruments and I'll sing that song form and so they can he hear the low low notes and the high notes and uh, you know they can figure out where the instruments come in you know mm -hmm. and especially the singing country music uh, with country music it's a little different from the gospel mm -hmm. the gospel I could get all I need is an organ yeah. or a piano player you know that that's pretty well for the uh, for the gospel that's all I need but for my country music you need multiple, you know, uh, instruments there. So I give them the melody, the words and the melody, and, and where the ups and the downs, and they figure it out from there. So is that, and, and you were talking about doing that kind of remote production with the with the fellow out of Anna mm -hmm. uh, here uh, however long ago. Is that exactly how that process went, that you just sang the song, and in that recording of the song, you gave them through your voice yeah. Where you wanted the highs, where you wanted the lows, and how that melody would play, and they just built the song around it? Well, fortunately, the guy that had the studio in Anna, uh, he played the keyboard. And matter of fact, he played the keyboard on the movie Nashville. Oh, wow. So he, okay. Yeah, that's why he left Anna. You know? <laughs> he, he got a spot on Nashville playing uh -huh. on the movie, on the episode. Uh, but uh, he had all of his friends, because he had been in... He had been in stayed in Nashville for about 30 years, so mm -hmm. he had everybody. He had some of the best uh, musicians on on our song that we. He back he did the background singing on my song, and uh -huh. I think he had Faith Hill musicians on there, and so he he had wow. the best of all the musicians. But he never left Anna to do it. Mm -hmm. They did it all digital. You know, he would send it to them, and they would send it back to him, and I, and that was amazing to me. You know uh, that. When it came out and we and the song came out, we put it together. 
to have such a beautiful arrangement, and he never even left Anna. Yeah. So uh, technology, that's your part. That, that, is, that is it. That is it. Yes. No, I, and I, it, it is really, it is, it is something, right, just to be able to assemble things. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think of a, I think of a uh, you know, a young musician out of, out of, you know, that came out of Southern Illinois that's now in Nashville, Dakota Holden, who's, who's, been, uh, who's been on this podcast before. But right before he left to go to Nashville, I was like, hey, man, you got to come in. We got to talk. We got to talk about now. Maybe in five years we'll see where you're at and, mm-hmm. and so on. But, I mean, he's still, he's still able to chime in and work with everybody here, whether he makes the drive from Nashville to perform live or whether he is in his little apartment in Nashville mm-hmm. playing and just – splicing everything together i mean yeah. it really yeah. is mm-hmm. impressive mm-hmm. how everybody can just if you want to if you want to be involved you can be involved doesn't yeah. matter if you're in antarctica at this that's point right. <laughs> that's, that's right yes yeah so what you know one of the things that 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 you'll have some some recollections of that i that i don't so i'm i'm 32 now you know my grandparents and, and great grandparents and and so on would would remember what carbondale looked like uh, years past, but that's something that where your memories probably lie on. People, people have talked to me and told me about Carbondale as kind of the city of lights before. Did it used to be bright like people describe it? Like every like every building had a neon sign and it was just all lit up all the time. Or well, that, you know that that was that was downtown Illinois Avenue, mm-hmm. which was you know at that time that was Highway Fifty One. Mm-hmm. And 51, you know, was just the two lanes, the north and the south, and it went straight down through the middle of town. That was all that was there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, uh, it showed. It had to show off there because people coming from the Chicago area, they came straight through Carbondale mm-hmm. if they came down 51. And uh, coming from Mississippi, you come up, you know, it's, it's amazing. You get on the railroad track, and the railroad in 51 goes side by side all the way to New Orleans. So people come from New Orleans, come right through Carbondale. So uh, Carbondale, yeah, uh, 51 was all lit up. Now, uh, you know, when you start getting into the neighborhoods, and I, do, I don't really know about across town, but mm-hmm. I, uh, I do know that in the northeast side of Carbondale, we had street lights, but they were they was very scattered out, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, in a way that was kind of good because in, in our neighborhood, uh, your mama say you could go outside, but when the street lights come on, you better be inside. <laughs> you know, she most kids was not allowed to stay out after the street lights came mm-hmm. on. You know, but uh, yeah, Carbondale was probably known to be the biggest city. You know, Carroll itself was a, a booming city too, mm-hmm. though, uh, with a lot of bright lights. But uh, you know, leaving the South and the hidden Illinois, Carbondale was probably the, one of the biggest cities until you got probably to Champaign or somewhere. Yeah, well, and I hadn't even thought about the railroad running right along mm-hmm. with 51 all the way to new orleans <laughs> i've sat there many a day and just and you know because i get the rad free so i just hop on the train and <laughs> go to new orleans you go to new orleans and shop for my daughter <laughs> <laughs> wow <laughs> so that so that was wow i you know i hadn't thought what <laughs> i'm trying to think of the best way to phrase this because I'm, I'm interested to know just like what what train travel was like outside of when you were having to work, right? So, like, you're talking about being able to just hop on the train and go down to New Orleans, shop for the kids, and then come on back up. That's right. I had to catch the train in Carbondale at night, 
get down to New Orleans about uh, 10 o'clock in the morning, go shopping for my daughter. I just had the one child then. Go shopping for my daughter, and because New Orleans had stuff totally different from Illinois. Yeah. And uh, get back on the train at 1.30 and come back home. <laughs> you know, it didn't cost me anything. So, yeah. uh, of course, Corrine was normally, you know, involved in, uh, you know, making sure everything was okay at home. Yeah. She went with me sometime, but most time it was just uh, for me to get uh, have the ability to get on there and go and come back. You know, uh, it's kind of was like a way of peace. And there again, I wrote songs and I wrote mm -hmm. uh, uh, commercials while I was on the train. It's a twelve hour ride. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> Creativity. Yeah, mm -hmm. does a lot for <laughs> yeah. for for everything. Well, that's. We're there, Milton. You made it. You made it the whole distance. You made it the hour. I'm after after months of not doing this consistently. I'm 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 appreciative of you working through me as I kind of try and get the get the rust off here as <laughs> as, as well. Okay. You know, it's uh you know it's it's one of those things. I'm sure just like just like anything creative that you've mm -hmm. got to do it on a regular basis for it to stay sharp. That's exactly right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, that's, that's kind of what this is. You know, people may not think, oh, well, interv interviews more, you know, just conversation than is creativity. Well, you know, if you want to produce a real good creative product, you've got you've to find some sort of creativity in the conversation. Mm -hmm. How do you best engage with the, with the person on the other side of the room from you? So mm -hmm. I appreciate you being here and doing this with well, me. I appreciate you inviting me. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Let me see as I make my transition off here for... Episode 97 of the WTF Carbondale podcast. Uh, as we get back into the swing of things, uh, new studio in place here, uh, where I hope we'll be able to produce uh, a number of these podcasts moving forward and just get back into the regular regular swing of, swing of things. So uh, stay tuned, folks, and have a good one, whatever that one may be. <laughs>